Welcome to another CoinGeek Conversation special. On this episode, we'll hear from individuals whose company's ESG initiatives, that's environmental, social, and corporate governance, are achieved through blockchain technology. While it seems like blockchain is not usually associated with ESG, these companies are making strides in proving how the technology can play a vital role in the industry. For Joe Aulis de Paye of gate to chain and Daniel Keene of Predict Ecology, it's all about data integrity. As for Dave Peril of Compute North, it's about making sure data centers for Bitcoin miners work efficiently. But our first featured guest believes blockchain will make the world a greener place. Here's Brian Doherty discussing his project, Proof of ESG. If I simplified it by saying that it's an initiative that's trying to make the world a better place, that almost sounds simplistic, but is, is that sort of a fair description? It is a fair description. I mean, even more greener place, right? To where we have all of these different you know, initiatives that are out there now for environmental, social, and corporate governance. You know, typically this has been a field that has sur- surrounded around what type of investments a, a enterprise or a business would make and whether those investments were green or not. And I think this is a an entire cultural change because we have these emerging technologies now, blockchain, you know, RFID, IoT devices that really allow us to not just measure, you know, these type of um, carbon footprints, but authenticate that information. And then these emerging technologies um, really start to transform the enterprises and incentivize them to go green because of the cost savings and because of the benefits and features that they're able to start integrating into their business now. It's an interesting one because the popular media do not associate blockchain with anything green, basically. In fact, the absolute opposite. But you are saying more blockchain will make the world a, a greener place. Which So that's an, it's a difficult message. to You've got a lot to, to educate people about. Yeah, I, I come from a different angle typically where, you know, primarily, again, a lot of the ESG consultants that businesses have entertained have um, have used FUD, right? Whether it's greenwashing, whether it's, uh, you know, where you're making these salacious statements about sustainability, but now they're tied to, say, your SEC reports or, you know, tied to something to where you have to authenticate that information or face fines from the government. And, you know, that has, you know, completely changed some of the initiatives from these, um, you know, businesses to where they're actually looking at how do we do this? How how do I how do I authenticate this information? Because I we are a responsibly or, or a responsible company. So how can we provide that you know level of verification about our footprint? And you know blockchain promotes honesty, right? I we hear that a lot about honesty. How many times it's in the white paper and just the authentication and verification of that data. Well, that's what this really starts to allow. And you know as when you get back to that energy topic, it's really just misunderstood. And that's one of the efforts that, you know, the Bitcoin Association um, really wanted to push out as well for this education in the sense of, you know, understanding that proof of work is scalable and it's vitally important for the information security. 
My takeaway from Brian is the part where he says proof of work is sustainable. Up next, we'll learn how blockchain helps with data integrity. While working on a project, Joe Olis DePaye found discrepancies in recording data on IoT devices. As he tells Charles Miller, trust became an issue with his work, but that all changed after he discovered blockchain, which led to the founding of his gate-to-chain business. Here's how it all started for Joe and his colleagues. Well, we met, the initial members of gate-to-chain, we met in a in an IoT project in, in Mallorca, in the mountains of Mallorca, in a UNESCO World Heritage Site, actually, a very special place. We were working on this project. Um, it, was, it was about um, tracking visitor flows. It was about tracking use of, of natural resources. And a couple of us were doing IoT at the time. Nothing to do with blockchain. It wasn't initially. No, 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 no. We arrived at blockchain basically uh, because we kept coming across this same problem, which was data integrity. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, there was a very specific example, which was when um, at the port of Palma de Mallorca, they set up a a sensor uh, infrastructure to be able to uh, test the air quality. Uh, there's a problem there with uh, the vast amount of cruise ships that are arriving all the time. It's a small town. It's terribly polluted. So they set up this this network of, of sensors. And for some reason, all the data that came up said that the air quality was perfect. There were political interests that made that a, a good answer. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that got us that got us worried. And was that a story that you were involved with, or just something you were reading about? No, no, we we were involved. We were involved from different angles, actually. Right. Yeah. You knew that the official result was not accurate. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So how so how did you move forward after that? Then? We kept coming back to this problem. Uh, we just we lost trust in what we were doing with IoT, to be honest, mm-hmm. because we saw that you know if you can't secure the data. There's just no point in spending money on sensors. Yeah, I suppose IoT is, a, is, a, is an area where almost nobody is going to go back to the original little piece of data and check that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Exactly, exactly. It's so difficult. There are so many steps in the process to so many things that can go wrong. From yeah. not cleaning a filter right. to actually manipulating the data when you right, put it on right. your computer. So you, you and your colleagues were sort of puzzling as to what might be done to avoid this kind of problem. Correct. And yeah. well, blockchain. Blockchain. That's when we discovered blockchain. Yeah. I mean, a couple of us I I'd, I'd heard about blockchain. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't particularly informed. Our CEO uh but he 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 definitely knew a thing or two about blockchain then. But uh yeah, that was when we 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 decided that we really needed to learn more about it and we started experimenting. We did a really cool little experiment where we got a, a smart water meter. Water's a big issue, as you can imagine, in, in Mallorca, as it is in most places of the world now. Uh, so we got this smart water meter that we connected to the blockchain. So we gave it a wallet. And then we started playing around with different variables where, for example, if the quality of the water went down, the price went down. The price of what? Of the water. So we oh, gave see, right. the sensor its wallet so that it could pay for its own water. Oh, wow. So then you could program it so that if the 
the quality of the water went down, as it does sometimes, then therefore you wouldn't be able to drink it, you'd need to use it just for watering, so the price of the water would go down. Whereas if the reserves of water went down, for example, during a drought, the price could go up. So right. you could program all these things into it. So in, in a way, you were trying to reflect the real value of the different kinds of water in a monetary way. That was, that was, that was the experiment, yeah. yeah. And I mean, this, this was just an experiment. experiment. We started, in fact, with, with Ethereum, because this is quite a long time ago now. That obviously didn't work. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Just going back to the principle of the thing, sure, blockchain is a good way of recording data, but what about the idea that the data still is only as, the blockchain is only recording data that is as accurate as is going into it? And it's mm -hmm. the, it's the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that initial step could still be subject to Obviously manipulation. It Obviously it could. Uh, there's when you, you have to, obviously have a sensor produced by a company who you trust, a sensor that's checked, and a sensor that can sign the information it's providing. That's important. What, because what the sensor itself, uh, you can program a sensor so that inside the sensor, you actually have the ability to sign the information that's being stored on the blockchain. So the sensor is signing the information so that if it's modified later on, then you know that that's not the genuine information that came out of the sensor. For Joe, blockchain restored trust and integrity in the work that they do for the environment. If blockchain is all about keeping accurate data records, ecologist Daniel Keene is on the right track. In his company, Predict Ecology, part of Daniel's work is to audit and survey a site. In this clip, he talks about his desire to record valuable information about the world around us in an immutable way, one that he says is verifiable. Well, I'm a botanist, uh, more specifically, um, and I like plants. So oftentimes I was validating and uh, assessing the rehabilitation that they'd planted back, um, comparing it to the reference ecosystems that they were trying to achieve. So you were, were you sort of acting as a kind of inspector to make sure that things had been done that they'd promised to do? Or? Yeah, in, 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 in a sort. Um, botany is, uh, is one of those uh, skills that uh, not a lot of people um, have. Uh, so as a result, you know, uh, being able to name the plants and being able to then record them faithfully um, yeah, it was in, in quite, a, quite a demand. So that, that was one of, right, that was so one of were, my core businesses. You were really on the ground doing detailed observations and recordings and yes, lots uh, of fresh air. <laughs> uh, yeah, lots of fresh air, lots of sunburn, uh, lots of getting stung by things and, and being bitten. Uh, uh, I can remember one occasion where I was sunburnt through my T-shirt, uh, through my work shirt. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> right. a lot of sweating. So now we're here in Dubai at the Bitcoin SV convention. And I think the link between Bitcoin SV and the, the work and, that you were describing is through this company called Metastream, which is also an Australian uh, business. Is that, how, does that, how did that work? Um, well, it was a happy accident, to be honest. Uh, Paul, uh, the founder of Metastream. Paul Chiari. Paul Chiari, yeah. Uh, we actually live in a, in, on the Atherton Tablelands uh, in Far North Queensland. Um, and some years ago, I think it was about 2015, we, um, we went to a startup weekend and we collaborated on that topic and we found a lot of shared value. Um, and he got then involved in, in Weather SV, which then morphed into uh, Metastream. And he and I have often shared uh, 
our desires to record um, valuable information or, or information that we see valuable about our world around us in an immutable way um, and a way that is verifiable. Um, yeah, and it's born from there. So we have a good working relationship. Yeah, I, I interviewed Paul definitely probably a couple of years ago, and he was describing the work of, of uh, the sort of way in use Internet of Things to uh, monitor plants and things for farmers. But so what, what's the difference between his project and predict ecology, which sounds like, what is predict ecology going to be doing? So predict ecology does, uh, still does a lot of on-ground field work. Uh, I still get out and fall over and get sunburnt and be bitten by things and invariably get wet. Um, so I do a lot of uh, botany. Um, not all of my data uh, gets put on to chain. Um, however, a lot of the data that my clients are now starting to look at, I'm subtly encouraging them to, um, to, to put in an immutable way. So the main differences between uh, Paul and myself is I collect it, um, and Paul has the plumbing and the tool sets. Right. So you're not, you're not specifically working for mining businesses now, or is that part of your work? That's part of the work that but I do. But people come to you and they say, please do an audit of the ecology around this site or something like yep. that. And then if you want to go down the route of uh, the blockchain and working with, uh, with Metastream, can you tell me a little bit more detail about how that works and what comes out of it? Um, <clears throat> It's actually really quite easy. Uh, I'll go and get a uh, re request to uh, audit something or to survey a site. Um, in Australia, you have to be a suitably qualified individual. Uh, you have to make a statutory declaration that what you see and what you record, you record faithfully. Um, those clients who are interested in, um, in uh, permanent solutions like blockchain, um, I integrate with uh, Metastream via an application that I've built. So I have mobile data collectors uh, that I use for all of my clients. Um, and there's a functionality in there to uh, take that data and write it to Metastream. Daniel Keen there from Predict Ecology. And now we turn our attention to a company that builds up data infrastructure sites, making sure they operate effectively and efficiently. Compute North looks at the economics of energy in a different perspective compared to traditional data center operators. Let's find out more in this clip. We focus on what we call tier zero computing. Um, in essence, we build, develop, and operate large scale infrastructure uh, for non-mission critical, highly computationally intensive applications, which are things like miners. So cryptocurrency miners, folks that are looking to really scale up their operations, we're the backside that helps build up those sites and make them operate very effectively and efficiently. Would it be fair to say that uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the parallel in the gold rush days where it was the people who made the shovels who were always said <laughs> to make the money. Are you in the shovel business? <laughs> We, we, we've had that analogy more than once of kind of the, the Levi's conversation. Um, and yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, that's certainly an element that we see. I think we do see a, a greater trend in that we think, you know, uh, what's going on in Bitcoin, what's going on with proof of work being one of the first applications that we think is driving of what we call this, this tier zero mentality. And that today's data centers, well, they're, they're, they're fantastic and they're amazing and they, they work great. They're simply overbuilt for a 
lot of applications that don't need that level of redundancy and that re- re- level of uh, you know what's what's called uptimes in the in the uh, the data center circles. So we think uh, you know cryptocurrency can really lead the way to provide other things like machine learning, graphic rendering, HPC, things that you know don't need to be there in near real time, like you know e-commerce or, or Zoom, for example. Right. It's interesting that you see it as a, an advantage that you're in the non-mission critical part of this business. I mean, th- there, are, there are opportunities uh, in not having to provide backups in, in the kind of way that uh, those mission critical applications would require, I suppose. Yeah, it opens up a lot of really interesting dialogues on the energy stand front. Um, and if you know mining, you know, mining is really um, the, the the source of the energy, the economics of the energy are really crucial to how you operate and candidly how you ultimately make money doing what you do. And if you think about our loads, the way that we look at it are very different from a traditional data center operator in really four key ways. Um, the first is that they're extremely large. The second is that they can be located almost near anywhere, which is a, a huge advantage to take advantage of, you know, stranded power assets, you know, substations, you know, areas where other people can reach or there might not be transmission. The load factor is really high, meaning that it doesn't go up and down and doesn't change much. And then last but not least, it's interruptible and it can be curtailed. Uh, and that is a huge option and a huge value to the, the energy construct, to energy providers, to you know, grid operators. And so being able to position in, in, in such a way really opens up some really intriguing opportunities. And again, I think this is leading the way for a lot of these other applications. So when you say it can be interrupted, do you mean that you know, when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing or something, it doesn't matter too much so that you can take advantage of uh, energy provision that wouldn't be suitable for, for other customers? Yeah, it could be in the, in the circumstance where you, you know, do global workload migrations, right? Where in essence, um, I'll use the United States, for example, you know, Texas is a, is a difficult and expensive place to run in the, in the summer months. On the flip side, in the northern plains like North Dakota are, you know, very, very cheap and cost effective. In the winter months, that, that reverses. You know, it, it's a lot of people are running their heaters in the, in the northern plains. It's a very, you know, the, the grid is really maximized. Texas is a very cost-effective uh, market at that point in time. So that would be like an example of, you know, being able to do it at scale across like uh, months. But there's also, you know, grid operations where there might be an emergency event. They might lose one of the, the, the plants might go down. There might be some sort of grid operations. And being able to, you know, interrupt and, and stop that load at a moment's notice and either pick it up, you know, hours or days later and continue that workload or migrate it to another facility, we think are really the, the, the way that this goes. There you have it, four insightful conversations on how blockchain is infiltrating the ESG industry. We hope you gained some valuable information from today's episode. And that wraps up our series of summer specials. Tune in again next week as Charles Miller opens the next season of CoinGeek Conversations. I'm Clara Saldan. Thanks for joining me today. Until next time, ciao.